0: What I want to do is I want to start a seven-week series, and I guess my heart's desire is that we would be able to talk about some very practical ways to, to transition just normal, everyday conversations with people into spiritual conversations, into gospel conversations. And to do so, we're going to get into some really practical ideas, but probably... In the last three or four or five weeks, we're gonna do that. The first couple of weeks, I, I wanna just kind of set the groundwork for us and really develop a, if you wanna call it just a biblical view of evangelism, kind of where we should be coming from, what we should be occupied with, because uh, I don't know about you all, but I've been in a lot of evangelism studies where it was pushed so hard that it became almost like hyper-legalistic for me to share the gospel. It became more of a chore and a burden and something that I was just like, oh, I got to do this before I, you know, I, in fact, I read a story years ago about a guy who had basically made an oath to the Lord that he would never go one day on earth without sharing the gospel with one person. And as a young man, you know, full of zeal and excitement, I was like, that's what I'm going to do, too. And I just remember sometimes I'd be at home at bed and be like, man I didn't even share the gospel with someone today I just feeling so guilty and beating myself up so I say that to say that I, I want to start the study with just some big picture concepts so that we don't find ourselves beating ourselves up if we're not just sharing the gospel with someone tomorrow or every day of our life we want to we really want to learn what it means to trust the Lord, what it means to walk by faith, and at the same time, be aware that God wants to use us and, and try to just strike that biblical balance because we can walk in the flesh and share the gospel. I mean, we can we can go cram it down anybody's throat we want to as long as they can't listen. I've found that people in wheelchairs can't get away from you. So you just go find someone in a wheelchair and you can just start yelling the gospel at them and, and make yourself feel better, right? And I'm kind of being facetious. That's the goal. We want to just establish the groundwork here as we get started. Tonight, what I want to do from this big picture perspective is I want to talk about God's perspective on people. How does God view people? How does God view the world? And then why we should have it too. So some big picture concepts this evening. The first thing we want to look at is is God's perspective on people. And we want to we want to just approach this by looking specifically at each member of the Trinity. We could spend all night doing this, but we're just going to look at a couple of examples from each member of the Trinity. And the first person I'll look at is, is God the Son's perspective. So Jesus Christ's perspective. And to do that, I want to go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we'll start there. Let me get there myself. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And we've got to establish some context here, but let's go ahead and and read the passage and then we'll come back and do that and just make a couple of observations about Jesus and his perspective on people. So verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so the very first thing we see in chapter nine, verse 35, is we notice that Jesus's message here is the gospel of the kingdom. Again, in context, we want to understand how does that differ from the gospel of grace? You know, we're we're not saying here that Jesus is preaching the gospel of grace. I mean, clearly, verse 35 tells us that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So we want to have some perspective on that. In fact, we did a Sunday night study on this a couple years ago, that the differences between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. Because if you don't recognize that, or we don't recognize that in the Gospels especially, especially the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be very confused in terms of context and what's going on. What is the Gospel of the Kingdom? Well, the Gospel of the Kingdom is simply the good news. Gospel still means good news, but it's the good news that King Jesus is here right now, and he's ready to establish the long-awaited kingdom. That was the good news of the kingdom. In fact. If you hold your finger there and, and you flip back to Matthew 3 1, this was John the Baptist message. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. It's near. God wants to establish it because the king is here. That's the message. Jesus preached. The same message early on in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what the gospel of the kingdom was. This is what Jesus was preaching in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And one of the things that we notice, and you may have seen it in verse 35, notice where he goes. He goes about all the cities and villages, but where is he teaching? Where is he centering his teaching ministry? Largely in the synagogues. So it's a, the gospel of the kingdom was largely a Jewish message. It was a message to the Jewish people that their king was here, that God was wanting to establish the kingdom in their generation. The sad news about that is we learn in John 1 that even though Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. They, they rejected the king and therefore, therefore they rejected the kingdom. We also see, even when we flip forward in Matthew chapter 10, notice what Jesus says about this gospel as he sends out the 12 to preach it. Matthew ten five: these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans. How's that in comparison to the the Great Commission? It's a little little bit different. The Great Commission is to go ye into the world, right? And as you're going, make disciples. and And there was no restrictions. In fact, the gospel of grace needs to go out to the world, Jew and Gentile alike. But the gospel of the kingdom was primarily for a Jewish audience. And this is why Jesus says, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not. Enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see a real consistent message or consistent preaching of the gospel of the kingdom all the way through Matthew chapter 12, which is the culmination and peak of the Jewish leaders rejection of Jesus Christ and that's when the unpardonable sin is committed by them the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and then what you'll find in the flow of the book of Matthew from about chapter 13 forward Jesus for the first time begins to speak of his death his betrayal and his resurrection and you definitely see a shift in his ministry where the kingdom is now postponed for the nation of Israel to a future date. And obviously we get a lot more of those details throughout the New Testament and then eventually the book of Revelation where we see him coming back to the earth with his saints in Revelation 19 and then in Revelation 20 establishing that long-awaited kingdom and we read about that in Revelation 20. One of the the other things we notice about this, this gospel, the kingdom that he's preaching here in Matthew 9 is that it was accompanied by teaching, by healings, and by miracles. And these miracles and healings were designed to to validate and verify to Jesus' audience that He was indeed the Messiah, that He was the rightful King of God's kingdom on earth. All of these things come together. Remember that again the gospel of the kingdom, the king is here. God is ready to establish the kingdom right now. That was the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the gospel of grace is simply the good news that Jesus has died for your sins and and risen again. That's the gospel of grace that we preach. Now, because he's not here on earth, the kingdom will be established after the tribulation period, as we read about in Revelation 6 through 18, and will be established at his second coming. That's the distinction we want to make here. But now, going back to his perspective, this is, again, we were just setting the context there. But in verse 36... It says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. What we see in verse 36a is that Jesus saw the multitudes and then he responded with compassion. And we say, but why? And we'll answer that question in a second. When the text tells us that Jesus saw the multitudes, it's telling us that he saw them with perception. In other words, he he looked and he actually considered them in his thinking. It wasn't just like he saw them and then moved on. He was really taking them in and considering who they were and what they needed and and what they were missing and that's why the text tells us that he was moved with compassion in fact it's a it's a very i don't know how else to describe the word it's like a guttural word it's a very deep visceral internal gut feeling that he had toward them in fact the word derives from another greek word which which actually talks about our bowels you know our our inner organs and it just said he was moved with that kind of love and concern straight from his gut, basically. Might, might we might say it? Yeah, he loved him from his gut, or something to that effect, to give the the literal visual aid that he was. That's being used there through that word. And so we see that he loved him, he cared about him, he had compassion on him, he was moved from his gut by what he saw and what he considered. Why is that? Well, we learn in verse thirty six b because they were weary, they were scattered, and they were like sheep having no shepherd. One of the things we learn about sheep just from history and, and from anybody that's kept sheep is they are they can't survive on their own in the wild. They need a shepherd to protect them. They, they have no natural defenses. They don't even have an innate sense of how to protect themselves. Literally, there's stories of where sheep will see a pack of wolves and wander over to them. I mean, they're, they've got a lot of problems. They're, they're very defenseless creatures. They need protection. And, and as Jesus looks on this multitude, he's not saying that they can't care for themselves, like feed themselves or clothe themselves. But spiritually speaking, they're they're scattered. And they've got lots of people trying to take advantage of them. In fact, if we jump back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we don't have time, but that's in Matthew 5 through 7. We know that that Jesus is calling out the religious leaders of the day because they weren't teaching the people the truth. They were completely misleading the people and they had taken God's standard of righteousness in order to get to heaven and they had lowered it according to their own standards. And that's why as Jesus works his way through the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of times he says, you have heard it said, but I say, and he says that multiple times. He goes back and forth, I think, like six times there in, in chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said by basically those of old or or those of your religious teachers of our day. But I say this. And some of the things that, that the religious teachers were teaching, they were just flat out taking God's standard of righteousness and lowering it to a level that man could achieve. They were taking external actions and making external breaking of God's law, the, the only thing that mattered, whereas God is also interested in what's going on internally. and This is why he says, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're like a murderer in God's sight. If you lust after a woman, it's just like you've committed adultery with her because God is interested in what's going on in the inside. Jesus had lots of negative interactions with these teachers who were not shepherding The Jewish people properly. They had not prepared. This is why when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is a rabbi of rabbis at the time. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? And see, they were like sheep without a shepherd because they had leaders and shepherds, false teachers who were leading them incorrectly. It's probably safe to say that the average Jew in Jesus' day was misinformed and mistaught about what it took to enter God's kingdom. And hence, John the Baptist's message was to repent, to change your mind. Change your mind about what? How you got into the kingdom. I believe, and one of the, th- and a couple of things that the Jews needed to change their mind about were a couple of just misnomers. They, they believed that if they were sons of Abraham in the direct lineage of Abraham, they were in the kingdom. They believed that if they had been circumcised, they were in the kingdom. They believed that they, they were keeping the Mosaic Law as best they could. They were in the kingdom. And Jesus' message and John the Baptist's message is you need to change your mind. That is not how you get in. And so as Jesus is taking all of this in, he looks at the people. He has compassion because many of them don't even have the truth. They don't know what it takes to have eternal life. They don't know how what it takes to be accepted by God. Not to be too harsh or seem critical of others, but I think the same is probably true of a large percentage of the average churchgoer in our day. And this is why you'll talk to people and never assume that because somebody goes to church that they're saved. Never assume that because they read their Bible or go to a Bible study that they're saved. Understand there is a lot of confusion out there. A lot of the people, I'll just share this as we do in in survey evangelism, and a lot of the people I've talked to over the years in one-on-one conversations, they were churchgoers, but they were not saved. They were trusting in their good works, and they really had no perspective on how the gospel fits with their predicament before God. Just understand that. This is is the Lord's perspective. He's not going to an irreligious people here. He's not with an irreligious people. He's with a very religious people and probably a very moral people. But again, that's not what gets people into heaven. And so he looks on them with compassion. And so Jesus's response shows that he's moved with compassion for those who do not know the truth that's an example of, of God, the son's perspective. We'll come back to verses 37 and 38 later. At least we'll, we'll mention it because this is where you and I come in, but I, but I will make a comment. Notice in verse 37, he says to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then notice what he says in verse 38. I just find it interesting because Jesus could have said in verse 38, Hey, so you guys be the laborers, you know, they're Look at the harvest. It's plentiful. The laborers are few. I need you guys to be the laborers. It's real interesting. He doesn't say that there. In verse 38, he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He encourages them to be a part of the program, but in an indirect way. He asks them to pray for laborers. And by chance, maybe it's them. Now, it is interesting in the next chapter, he sends out the twelve into the harvest but it's really fascinating there in verse 38 he doesn't directly command them he tells them to pray for labors and i just think that's just kind of an interesting observation there let's look at god the father's perspective we want to notice it through through two passages and so let's go over to first timothy chapter two those of you that have been with us on sunday nights for the last year your your bible might automatically open to first timothy we've been there so much 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 4 says this. Actually, I think I've just got verse 4 on the screen. Yeah, but verses 3 and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we see God the Father. He's got this, this desire. That word desire means to will, to wish, to desire. And it implies what we would call active volition and purpose. In fact, the scriptures use a Greek word here. If you, if you want to write it down, if you're interested in these things, the Greek word is fellow, thelo, T-H-E-L-O, thelo. And it's a stronger Greek word. There's a couple of words that Paul could have selected here to describe God's desire or his will. Thelo is a stronger Greek word then a secondary greek word he could have used which was boulamai boulamai which is b o u l o m a i b o u l o m a i because thelo indicates not only a, a willingness to do something but also pressing on to action boulamai just indicates you have a strong desire or intention but you don't necessarily execute the desire or you don't take steps to execute the desire. The word that 1 Timothy two four uses here, fellow, indicates that God desires something so strongly that he was willing to do something about it. He was willing to bring it to pass and execute an action. And of course, we know what that action was. He sent his only begotten son. He demonstrated his love, Romans 5.8 tells us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is how God acted upon this desire. And there's two things that the text mentions that God desires. Those two things are are found in verse four. The first one is he desires that all men would be saved. Again, notice that the word used here is on all, not not just some men, not just most men. And I think In order to really step back and say, this is God the Father's perspective on mankind. He literally strongly desires and went out of his way to act in such a way that each and every person could go to heaven. He doesn't want one single soul to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to not take advantage of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for them. And you just put that in perspective. I mean, just think of, just think of the people in your life that, that are encompassed in this all men. Every person that you've ever laid eyes on falls in this category of all men. As you're at Kroger and as you're at Publix and as you're at a restaurant and as you're on the road with Atlanta drivers, you know, and they, they're not behaving the right way. Understand that Every person you see, even Republicans and Democrats, let's throw them all in there. Even every politician fits into this all men category. We've got to understand that this is God's perspective. He went through great efforts by sending his son to accomplish what he did so that all men could be saved. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Nobody has to go to hell because of what he desired and what he did. Not only did he desire all men to be saved, but he desired that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, all carries over into this phrase At all carries into this phrase in terms of desiring those to have a knowledge of the truth. And knowledge is is a neat word in the Greek because it reflects a full and complete knowledge. And what I love about that. Is it's not just partial becoming a, a Christian is not just like getting into a secret club it's only for a select few we're we're trying to keep it you know hush hush just for the the elite chosen ones no God wants everybody to know everything God is is completely transparent and he's got this desire to to bring people into this full knowledge because his plan is perfect. There's nobody that could critique his plan. Nobody that could improve his plan. We see in Romans when it says that he demonstrated his justice. The idea is that he, he literally pointed his finger at the cross to demonstrate that God remained just and offering salvation to sinners because he took out his justice on Jesus Christ. And he took out his justice on Jesus Christ, giving him what we deserved so that he would be free to give us something we don't deserve. That's called grace. That's the only reason that God can extend grace is because his justice has been executed on your substitute. So he's free now to offer us something we don't deserve, which is salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a righteousness equal to his righteousness, etc. He wants us to come into this full and complete knowledge. He's being very transparent on how he put this all together. And so that's his strong desire. Now flip over with me to Second Peter chapter 3. And let's look at another one. 2 Peter 3, 9, which reads this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." We see that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. You can tie that word into a lot of different verses, but this is John 3, 16, right? Who's, whoever believes shall not perish. The idea is that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell or anyone to face the penalty for sin because his son has paid that penalty. There's no reason that anyone has to face that penalty anymore. So he doesn't want anyone to perish. This is why he's... He's patient, or he seems slack or or slow in terms of fulfilling his his ultimate promise, but he's very patient because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants to give everybody as many chances as they can to hear the gospel and opportunity to think about it and respond and put their faith in his son. And he doesn't want anybody to perish. He's long suffering because many will not change their mind. That's that's what the word repent means. They won't change their mind about who or what saves. And so many will indeed perish, but not because God wants them to. Not because God didn't do something so that they didn't have to perish. So it's very it's very sad to understand that everybody in hell will have their sins paid for in the sense that they had a substitute die for them and they didn't have to pay for their sins. But because they rejected God's one and only solution, then they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And and some will perish because they won't change their mind about who or what saves. And so that is uh, just a tragic message. But we understand that God is not willing that anyone should perish. He would love if if heaven was bursting at the seams with the entire population of, of the world. But obviously it won't because people will not trust in his solution in his alone from God the Father's perspective he he basically sees all men women and children in one of two ways he sees them in Adam or in Christ that's interesting we're not really making the transition of how we should see people but we don't see people this way we see people as tall short Different shades of good, different shades of bad, you know, they're pretty, they're, they're ugly, they're pretty ugly. I mean, we, we've got all these little shades of how we see people. They're annoying, they're obnoxious, they're nerdy, they're rude, they're boring, they don't, there's all these shades of where which we see people and categorize them. And God is, is very, if you want to call it laser narrow focus, they are either in Adam or in Christ. And if they're in Adam, they need the gospel. And if they're in Adam and they die in Adam, they will go to hell. They'll perish. God doesn't want to see that. So he's very laser narrow focused on that. Let's look at the third member of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit's perspective. And to do that, let's go back to John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. This is the Holy Spirit's role in this world. Let's look at this passage here, this, this perspective on mankind and the world. Jesus speaking in, in John 16, 8 says, When he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. One of the things that you see there in verse 8 is when he has come in and through, I I believe his indwelling ministry of of believers during the church age, he's going to convict the world. And that word convict means to prove them wrong, to show them and persuade them that they are wrong about three things. As we follow the passage, they're wrong about about three things. And I'm going to do it in different order because I want to come back to sin last because a, a lot of people think, They'll use this passage, and it's basically like the Holy Spirit wants to convict the world of all their sins, plural. But you're going to notice that it's not sin, plural. It's sin, singular. And we're going to see that verse 9 actually tells us what that sin is that the Spirit of God is convicting the world or showing them or reproving them of here in a second. But I want to go out of order because I want to go to righteousness, verse 10, because He wants to convict the world that they are wrong concerning righteousness. Why? And Jesus says in verse 10, because I go to my father and you see me no more. What is Jesus basically saying there? I believe what he's saying is he's the only one righteous. He's the only one good enough to earn or merit heaven. And the spirit of God wants to convict the world that that we ain't, to put it simply, we are not righteous. No, not one. There's no one who's righteous. There's no one who could earn heaven on their own. And do you think the world and and mankind need convincing of that? Yes, they do. In fact, every religion needs convincing of that because that's all they tell people to do to go to heaven. They say, you got to be a better boy and a better girl. You got to be a good person and you got to strive to be good enough that God would let you in and they need to be corrected. They are wrong. And the Spirit of God is working relentlessly to convince them that they are wrong as it relates to righteousness. Because the only righteousness that God will accept is a righteousness equal with his own. And the only way a person can get that is through the gospel by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So he's convicting the world of righteousness. Not only that, but verse 11, he's convicting the the world of judgment. And it says, because the ruler of this world is judged. If the, the leader of the rebellion is going to be judged, then everybody who's followed him in this rebellion, which is what sin is and what a lack of righteousness is, it's basically choosing Satan over God. It's choosing to reject God's laws. The Spirit of God wants to convict the world that, yes, we are unrighteous. And yes, there will be a judgment for having unrighteousness, not having the righteousness of God. So he's convicting and reproving the world of that. And then the third thing is he wants to convict the world of sin. But notice what the sin is, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. He is trying to convict the world that they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. This is the Holy Spirit's perspective on the world. The world needs to change their mind, and they're only going to change their mind when they're presented with the truth that they have no righteousness, that judgment is pending, but that God sent his son to take that judgment for us and to provide us with the righteousness we need. All we have to do is trust in God's solution. And so you can see the spirit of God's perspective on mankind. I want to share my screen with something else here. And this is just a book that I wanna recommend to you, and I recommend it with with a caveat. I'm gonna kinda put it in the chat right now. Just what the doctor ordered is the name of the book. I'm pretty sure his name is Wilson. Yeah, Walter Wilson. Here's my disclaimer. I would recommend this as just an encouraging biographical read. Walter Wilson was a doctor by training. He was a believer who had a heart to share the gospel. And he was one of these guys that really had a, a great mindset in terms of presenting himself to the Lord and trying to be aware of opportunities. And this is a book that for many months I would I would read a story um, out of this book to my kids. Here's the disclaimer. You've got to, especially for those of us who want to be clear on the gospel, you've got to sanitize the gospel in some of the stories. He wasn't as clear As we'd like him to be, but I want to just show you his heart and the way he he thinks. And I want to just read maybe one of these stories during each study, just as an encouragement to us, because it's just amazing what this man did and just how he thought, you know, as they say, may his tribe increase, you know, may may we be part of this tribe, but I just wanted to show you some of the creative ways that this man did this. The title of this chapter, and, and again, this is based on a true story. It's called the wrong address, but the right person. So I'm just going to read this. It says the train had just entered the boundary limits of a great city. When the Porter aroused me from my deep sleep and informed me that we would soon be in the depot, there was no time for reading the word nor for a season of prayer for the train had come to a stop by the time I was fully dressed and all the passengers were leaving because I intended spending only a day in that city. I checked my baggage at the station, took my sample case and went at once to the office of my customer. At 4 o'clock after completing our business transactions together, I left him and started back to the station. Because I had been deprived of my morning period of meditation, this lack of spiritual food and preparation not only caused me to be to feel heavy of heart, but it also filled my soul with disappointment. As I walked down the street, a large hotel was located on that street. Entering, I went up uh, to the mezzanine floor where I sought to be alone with the Lord. I confessed to him my failure that day, my neglect of prayer, my also my omission to read the scriptures. I then asked him whether in his infinite grace he would not find some way to give a message through my lips to some troubled heart in that strange city. Having waited on the Lord a while, I felt convinced that he would find some work to do through me that evening. About 530, while sitting in the coffee shop, the Lord reminded me that there abode in that city, the son of a friend of mine who lived out west. I knew that this son was not saved and at once accepted it as from the Lord that I should visit this young man and give him the gospel. Obtaining a telephone book. Remember those? I soon found his address and decided to call at his home. Arriving there, I found a duplex building with his name on a plate by the door leading upstairs. I rang the bell which opened the door permitting me to enter the hall. At the top of the stairs stood a young woman who inquired what I wanted. I was not surprised to see a young woman for I had been told that my young friend had recently been married. Is this where Charlie Johnson lives? I asked him. I'm a friend of his and came to visit him. Yes, come right up, she invited very courteously. As I reached the top of the stairs, she escorted me into a very attractive living room, nicely furnished but dimly lit. On the opposite side of the room stood a lady and a gentleman whom she introduced to me as the sister and brother-in-law of Mr. Johnson. Taking my overcoat and hat, they invited me to be seated, whereupon I inquired whether or not Charlie was at home. My heart was impressed with the opportunity presented of giving the gospel, and I was much in prayer that the Holy Spirit would give the right words and would guide in the conversation. In reply to my inquiry, Mrs. Johnson said, I am sorry, but Charlie is not home. He is working nights now. How splendid that is, I said. His business must have increased greatly since he has found it necessary to put on both a day and night shift. She looked quite surprised upon hearing this and said, Charlie is not in business. He is an engineer and just now is working on a night shift at the City Waterworks. Is not his father a merchant in Loganville? I asked. Why no, she said. His father is a carpenter and lives in Jackson. I married him there. A look of astonishment came over all of our faces for it was quite evident that I was in the wrong house. I cannot understand this, I said, for Charlie's father told me, that he was engaged in manufacturing small motors for washing machines, and that he was doing quite well at the business. It is evident that I have secured the wrong address of my friend and I shall leave. I trust you will pardon me for intruding, and I'm sorry if your evening's visit has been interrupted by my coming. Mrs. Johnson smiled while all three of them arose to tell me goodbye. I believe I know what your trouble is, doctor, she said, There is another Charlie Johnson who lives at this same number and on this same street, but he lives on the east side of town. We are on the west side. His home is just 40 blocks straight east of us on this very street. I know that his father lives in Loganville, for we get his mail frequently, and I have noticed the postmark on the envelope. This peculiar coincidence caused my heart to crowd to God, for I felt that this visit was planned by the Lord. Many thoughts were going through my mind while I put on the overcoat. Approaching the center of the room to bid goodbye to the sister and her husband, I observed lying on the center table a well-worn Bible with dog-eared corners. I knew that dog ears on books could not be purchased at the bookstore. These come only by long and frequent usage. Picking up the Bible carefully and prayerfully, I inquired, Do you read this book, Mrs. Johnson, and do you love it? At once, all three of them became deeply interested they looked at each other with astonishment, and then at me, as though their minds were stirred to ask some important question. Yes, she answered quickly and firmly, we love that book in this home. Have you found from its pages, how you may be saved and know it? I inquired. By this time, the hearts of these friends were so stirred that they could not restrain tears. They looked at each other in such a particular peculiar way that I sensed immediately that some strange thing was transpiring with which I was not familiar. After she gained control of her feelings, Mrs. Johnson's asked, do you understand that Bible? Can you tell us how we may be saved? Yes, indeed. That is my principal business in life. I assured her. I would be so glad if I could help you with it. She urged me to remove my overcoat again and to be seated. We had drawn up our chairs near the table and were comfortably seated. When Mrs. Johnson said, Dr. Wilson, when you rang the doorbell, We three were on our knees praying that God would send someone to show us the way of salvation. We have been meeting here every night, every Friday night to pray for help. All summer long, we've gone to services here and there and have heard some wonderful messages. Somehow none of these sermons have helped us. What we want to know is how to get rid of our sins and to obtain eternal life. We know that Jesus does it, but how does he do it? Can you answer this question? It was not difficult to see that the blessed Lord of the harvest had answered my prayer and led me to the very place where the Lord Jesus was working and wanted to enter in. for each one obtained a Bible, I took mine from my pocket, and we all turned to Luke 19.10. There we found the statement of the Lord Jesus saying, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. It is you three that he came to save, I continued. Your heart should be very glad indeed to know that God saw your need and provided for you a savior who is both able and willing to save. Will you let him save you tonight? Their faces now were aglow with anticipation. They were drinking in every word and reading the message for themselves out of their own Bibles. Mrs. Johnson then asked, But how does he save anyone, Doctor? That's that is exactly what we want to know. Turning to first Peter three eighteen, we aloud read, Christ also has suffered, has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. By suffering for you, I explained to them, he took the punishment for your sin. He took the whipping you should have had. God made him suffer for your sins that you might trust him with the saving of your soul and enjoy God's favor and forgiveness. We then turned to 1 Peter 2, 24 and right? read, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore them for you, three friends, I said. It was your own sins which God laid upon him and took from you. God now invites you to accept The Lord Jesus, as his gift to you, is at God's right hand, able to save. He will save you now if you will trust him with your soul. We could go on, but that's the main point of the story. You can just see the, the way his mind was turning. Knowing that God wanted to use him to share a message and having this opportunity... Even if he's in the wrong house, he's looking for clues and opportunities. And so anyways, I hope that was a small encouragement to you. That book is full of stories like that. In fact, it was said the reason why he even wrote these stories down is because he had a lot of friends on different Bible teaching circuits. And as he was sharing these stories, they said, man, you got to write these down in a book. No one's ever going to believe this. And so that's why he, he wrote it down. Very encouraging to see that. Now the question is, we've been looking at how God sees people. What is God's perspective of people? And now we want to talk briefly about how we can see people from God's perspective. If we're being honest with ourselves, unfortunately, many times being around unbelievers is an unpleasant experience for Christians. It's just flat out unpleasant. Their language is terrible. Oftentimes, they're very self-centered. Their their hobbies are st- are sometimes sinful hobbies we would never get involved in. The, the places they want to go or take you is, is places we're not uncomfortable going or we are uncomfortable going. The topics of conversation they want to engage in, the way that they they speak about it, all these things oftentimes will cause us to raise our eyebrows. I I remember I had this neighbor in Texas and you know I just started to develop a, a little friendship with him because my my younger girls would go play with his daughter and so we we got to know each other a little bit and and a couple of times we went out to eat well it was really uncomfortable because the guy was was married at the time he was he was hitting on the waitresses when we were out to eat he was hitting on women in the neighborhood while I was over at his house I mean it was just there's a lot of things going on there I was just like oh just not. Not comfortable with the experience. And, and not only that, but once he found out that I was into what, what he thought I was into religion, he wanted me to, he begged me to watch this video that was basically against the Bible, showing how the Bible was just a myth and it was full of error and stuff. And it was just one of these things. Like I was very uncomfortable. It wasn't a very pleasant experience for me. And I was able to share the gospel with him at one point. Now he was not very open to it at the time, but but I did I was able to share it with him at some point. My first response was just rejection of him. My my first response was to to pull away. Many Christians, this is how we live our Christian life. And and part of it is because we don't see people from God's perspective. The monastic orders, the monks, the nuns of the world, they're not the only types of people that live in isolation. Many churchgoers, many believers live in isolation as well in terms of the way that we view other people. And you know, it's probably been rightly said by authors of different books that the greatest barriers to successful evangelism are not necessarily theological. They're cultural. They're these cultural patterns of life that these personal preferences, these little idiosyncrasies of personality where we just, we just won't avail ourselves to, to other people if they're not like us. And so that's a very that's something that we need to to drop immediately, you know, in order to see people from God's perspective. And in fact, so many times as believers, we lead out with things that may be important to us, but in the grand scheme of things, in terms of what's important to God and his laser narrow focus, they're not as important to God as to whether or not this person is saved, you know, what their political views are what their health views are, what their food or medicinal views are, if they use essential oils, if they don't, what their hygiene is. You know, I know even sometimes, you know, people will, will say about people, man, that person doesn't even wear deodorant. Well, who cares? <laughs> are they in Adam or are they in Christ? And we need to start thinking that way. And, and unfortunately, we get drawn into thinking the same way that the world thinks. We think very carnally about other people and we think, well, they're so unpleasant to be around. And really, that's not the issue. The, the issue with unbelievers is never what they do, how they live. It's always who they are. It's always who they are. Are they an Adam? Are they in Christ? And by the way, if they're an Adam, here's another biblical perspective we should consider. The reason they act the way they do is they only have a sin nature and they live from that source of life 100% of the time. So what What do you expect Somebody to be controlled by sin 100% of the time to act like, to look like, to smell like, to speak like. I mean, these are the kind of things that we need to take in perspective. This is God's perspective on people. That's number one. Number two, I think we need to be convinced, each one of us, that God wants to use you. Ephesians 2.10 is a great passage. It follows Ephesians two eight nine, 9, but it's such a great passage for this point because... It says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you know, one of the things we need to understand just as we live our Christian life is that God has designed good works for you and I to walk in. He's got good works that as he looks at you individually with your geographic location with your individual spiritual gifting, with your background experiences, everything that makes you, you, God has specifically designed good works for you to walk in. Many people, when it comes to this topic of evangelism, they'll say, they're going to tell God what they can't do. Oh God, I can't do that. Oh, oh God, I there's no way I'll do that. Oh God, I don't know enough to do that. And we end up dictating to God what we will and will not do or what we're willing to do and not willing to do and i and i get it you know if if you're a naturally quiet person or shy person this is probably terrifying the fact that you're even here looking to get equipped is probably terrifying for some of you from a very basic mindset why not occupy yourself with being available to god for what he's designed you to do now whether or not god is going to use you all the time or sparingly in personal evangelism, we don't know. Maybe he won't use you very often in personal evangelism, but the encouragement here from the word of God in terms of having God's perspective, just be open and aware. Just be available to the Lord. And either way, even if you're going to be used by God greatly and often in evangelism, or you're going to be used sparingly, equip yourself like he's going to use you all the time. Because... What may end up happening, and this happens all throughout the history of the church, is that you may get equipped for a good work for the sole purpose of training and equipping somebody that you're discipling, and maybe that is going to be their ministry where they are involved greatly with other people. So never, never miss out on an opportunity to be equipped. It was like a person told me years ago I was and this happens at every church I've ever been to, is if I teach on marriage someone will inevitably come up to me and say, well, I've been married for 40 years. I, you know, I hope I've got it figured out. I'm not sure I can learn anything new. Or I remember, and I'm thinking to myself, well, do you know anybody else that's married in your life? I mean, that, that you interact with that's married that might be able to use some of this truth that you might be reminded of. Could it be a help possibly in your own marriage? Could it be a help in your kids, your grandkids marriage, the the neighbor across the street? Why not get equipped? Because you never know how God may use that information for other people. It was like another young couple in my church in Texas and I and I started teaching on biblical parenting. It was a six week series and they just disappeared for six weeks. He was a good enough friend that I was like, hey, where you been? You know, what's, what's going on? You guys, you guys okay? You sick? Or why haven't you been coming? He's like, He's like, oh, yeah, you're teaching on biblical parenting. We don't have any kids yet. And I said, and I won't say his name. I, I said his name, but I was like, dude, you think you might have kids someday? He's like, oh, yeah, we're planning on having kids. I was like, why don't you knowledge bank this stuff then? Because you're probably going to need it. The point is, I think even in this this area of personal evangelism, be equipped. Take the time to invest in being equipped because you you never know how God may want to use you. Number three, 1 Peter 3.15 is often used when we talk about apologetics, but basically each one of us needs to pursue spiritual growth. We need to be occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it, and when we are, it's gonna alter our perspective of others. In fact, when you look at 1 Peter 3.15, we oftentimes focus on the last part of that verse, I want to come back and just make an emphasis on the first part, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So oftentimes we quote the end of that verse thinking like, well, we got to be ready to give an answer. We got to be studied up. We got to be good on our apologetics, et cetera, et cetera. But what's the very first instruction there in verse 15? It's sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You might say, you know, the word sanctify always means to set apart. The idea is that you're setting the Lord apart in your hearts in a special place reserved for special attention. The idea is is you're occupied with the Lord. You're enjoying fellowship with the Lord. Before you can go out and just start shooting off answers at the hip for every objection that you might get, The idea is that we're to be walking with the Lord. We're to be pursuing spiritual growth. And that leads to number four. Really focus. If we want to have God's perspective on people, really focus how to walk by faith in your daily life. Know, reckon, and present according to Romans chapter 6. And just remember that when we talk about walking by faith, we're not talking about some mystical ethereal, you know, experience. We're we're talking about trusting in an object, okay? We're talking about trusting, more specifically, that object is a person and his work. That's what we're talking about. Now, obviously, that's how we're saved from the penalty of sin, but it's also how we're saved from the power of sin. And Romans 6 details that. The object in whom you're trusting in will determine... How valuable your faith is. Your faith is is only as valuable as the object in whom you're trusting in. And so when we talk about walking by faith, what Romans 6 teaches us is, is simply this, that not only did Christ die for you, but you died with Christ. Not only did Christ raise from the dead, but you were raised with Christ from the dead to newness of life. Your relationship to sin as a source has been completely changed as a believer. But you're only going to benefit from it. You're only going to benefit from that freedom as you walk by faith in the finished work of Christ crucifying you with him and resurrecting you to newness of life with him. And this is why Romans 6.11, by the way, the first command in the book of Romans is right here in Romans 6.11. He tells us to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God In Christ Jesus, our Lord, you are counting it to be true. You're counting it to be true by faith. And as you do that, you're going to go on no longer presenting yourself to the members of sin or presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But you are now going to present your members to God as those who are alive from the dead. So even the presentation of your members is by faith. So this is how we walk by faith in a very practical way. And just know this, that your sin nature does not want you sharing Jesus Christ with other people. Your sin nature wants you to focus on your fear. Your sin nature wants you to focus on your inability to know all the answers. Your sin nature wants you to focus on your lack of communication skills, your lack of preparation, whatever. Anything to keep you from, from sharing Jesus Christ. And you and I need to be freed From the sin nature. We don't need to be dominated by sin. In fact, we need to be freed from sin and simply presented to God to be available to walk in the good works that He's designed us to walk in very important that we learn to walk by faith. And that's not always going to be in in just times of evangelism. That's going to be in our marriages. That's going to be in our friendships. That's going to be in our employment. That's going to be just even internally when no one else sees that we're an absolute internal wreck because of some anxiety or some temptation or what have you. This is where we need to learn. This is in the daily mundane moments of life. When we need to be freed from sin And guess what? As we're freed from sin and we're walking influenced by the spirit of God, we are going to see people through God's perspective and be available. And this goes with number four. We need to value being in fellowship with the Lord. And when you do sin, don't remain out of fellowship with the Lord for long periods of time. Confess your sin, be restored to fellowship. Don't just hang out in sin. You know, sometimes I, In talking to young people, and I thought this way myself, but in talking to young people, it seems to be a pretty consistent way of thinking. Like, well, I sinned eight or nine in the morning, I succumbed to some temptation, so I might as well just, you know, this day's shot, I might as well just do it all day. And a lot of people think that way. No, don't, don't think that way. Yeah, so you, you yielded to temptation at nine o'clock, you lost your temper, you, you coveted, you swore whatever. That day is not lost. You know, you can get right back into fellowship with the Lord once you recognize that as sin and you can redeem the rest of the day for Jesus Christ. And so we need to be thinking in terms of that way. That's the study tonight. In conclusion, next week, we, we want to actually talk about the different types of evangelisms and talk about the pros and cons with different types of evangelism. And I and I think there's there's pros and cons with all of them. But I think what we're trying to head toward, hopefully as a group and individually in our life, is more of this relational type of evangelism where, where it's people that we're, we're interacting with on a normal, natural level versus the other types. And we'll consider those next week. If you would like, the last three weeks of this study, I'm going to be using a book. It's one of those books that I, I can't just recommend wholeheartedly as if, oh yeah, you can get this and trust everything in it. It's a tool. The name of the book is Tactics. And you can see the spelling of the author's name, Gregory Kukul. Cuckle. I don't know how you pronounce that. Kukul, Cuckle. But notice the subtitle here. It's a game plan for discussing, discussing your Christian convictions. That's a book that in terms of if you want to follow along and the last three weeks of the study, as a disclaimer, I don't believe he's really clear on the gospel. What he does do is he gives some some really practical strategies in discussing our convictions, the gospels, um, really dissecting people's beliefs. Because what you'll find a lot is when people put up an objection to the gospel, they're just repeating something they heard. They've, they've actually never really thought of it themselves or thought through it and so just give some really good strategies that you can implement in conversations to really get people to to the heart of the message which is the gospel. I'll be quoting that, reading from that. That's it for tonight. Lord, thanks for this evening. I look at the faces here, the names and I I know that that each one of us, Lord, have have people that come to our mind, loved ones, maybe family members uh, as Billy was describing or maybe friends, maybe co-workers, maybe it's the, the same checkout girl or the same checkout guy or our favorite, our waitress or, or waiter at our favorite restaurant that we've developed a relationship with over the years. I mean, there's so many people, Lord, that come to mind and and yet, Lord, we want to be sensitive. We don't want to just force the conversation, but we know it's important. We know that you want them to hear the message. We know that they need to hear the message. But Lord, we need, we need to understand how you, how you lead and how you guide. And we need to just take advantage of, of your grace. And Lord, we need to learn how to be aware of opportunities that you're giving us. And even in our own lives, Lord, we, we desire to just enjoy fellowship with you more consistently and to walk in dependence upon you each and every day so that we are aware that we remain in our mind presented to you by faith so that you might use us according to your will and according to the good works that you've designed us to walk in. All of these things coming together, Lord, we just ask that you would use this series of studies to just really greatly equip us for the work that you've called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.